good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to everyone listening, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 20 of the Well-Read Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bierke, aka The Real Bookish Writer. I am a reader, writer, bookseller, book festival goer, and I am and always have been obsessed with genre fiction. For those of you who are new here, usually there are two segments, a review section of the books I've read in the past week, and then a new author interview. However, there will be no book reviews this week, but expect quite a few next episode. So let's dive into the author interviews. My first guest today is the Sunday Times bestselling author of A Dowry of Blood, and her newest release, An Education and Malice, has officially hit the USA Today bestsellers list. Her next book, Evocation, the first book in a four-book series, is out in May. A graduate of the Creative Writing Program at the University of North Carolina at Asheville and the Theological Studies Program at Princeton Seminary, she currently lives in Boston with her fiancé, spoiled Persian cat, and vintage blazer collection. Please welcome S.T. Gibson. Well, welcome, 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 Saint. I am so freaking excited to talk with you. I am obsessed with your books. I'm obsessed with your <laughs> stories, your characters. I'm obsessed with your writing style. Like, it's... All of it is just absolutely fantastic, and I'm so excited to dive into An Education in Malice because this book was so much more than I wanted from a book, and it's it's freaking amazing. I'm obsessed with it. Uh, but let's start out with the question that I start every interview off with. It's why did you want to become a writer, and how did it happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm one of those people who's been writing since I was really small, but I think... Um, a very clear memory I have about really wanting to tell stories was being about, I want to say eight years old. And I checked out the X-Men encyclopedia from the library because I was really into superheroes. And I was reading all these character sheets and just getting really sucked into like, in an alternate universe, these two characters are married and then they're divorced and their secret love child takes over the universe, like the drama of it all. And I remember very clearly reading um, an interview with one of the creators that was in the front of the book in which he basically said like half jokingly half seriously x-men is so popular because it's a soap opera and i was just like that's what i want to do i want to write soap operas that's fantastic <laughs> and yes and from there i started drawing little comics of like me and my friends as superheroes and trying to tell stories that way and then i got frustrated because um Visual art is a very difficult, highly developed skill that I didn't have when I was eight. So I just started writing them without pictures. And that's pretty much been ever since. Um, I really got into trying to write novels in high school. Um, infamously, the first novel I ever completed that will never see the light of day was like Sexy Angels Book of Revelation fan fiction. Um, that was like dystopian chosen one YA, which was very of the time. And I just have never stopped. It is my favorite way in the world to connect with people, um, to kind of share my inner emotional world with other human beings. And it excites me. And I I love, you know, taking creative risks and, and seeing how they land with people. And I love entertaining people. I'm kind of a performer at heart. And I do view art as writing as a kind of performance. So I love what I get to do. Oh, why fantasy with a big emphasis on romance? Because the two books that I've read of yours, romance is a huge portion of that. Yeah. So why why those genres? Why those themes? 
I think I've always been really attracted to speculative stories. Um, I read a lot of them. That's what I like to watch movies about. And again, I really like comic books and things like that. Um, I've just always been enchanted by the idea that the world could be enchanted, that there could potentially be magic around every corner. Um, and I like kind of the heightened emotions and the heightened stakes that you can introduce into a story with fantastical elements. I was also really into fairy tales when I was younger, and I just consumed a lot of folklore and a lot of fairy tales. Um, so just, I've always really been kind of in that world. And then I was not like other girls and I was convinced I didn't like romance in high school even though some of my favorite pieces of media ever were like gothic romances like I loved the Phantom of the Opera I loved Interview with a Vampire um the 2004 Van Helsing movie that have these romantic overtones but I was like no I don't know I've just I don't really like romance and then it wasn't until I was a little bit older and I started working in publishing and working on romance novels that I was like, well, if I'm going to be working on these, I should really read them. And I should really have a better understanding and appreciation of the genre, even if it's not for me. And then I read a KJ Charles book and I was like, this is for me. This is where I live. I love this so much. So I always say that KJ Charles was the author that made me want to write romance. For those of you who are listening who might not know, KJ Charles writes queer historical romance, sometimes with a speculative bent. So I was really inspired. Um, and I think for me, it, it really comes back to a fascination with human relationships and with systems of affinity and found family and different ways that we fall in love and care for each other and different ways that love can lead us to hurt each other. I'm endlessly fascinated by that. So for me, the marriage between the speculative and the romantic really speaks to my love of heightened emotions and melodrama and, and telling larger than life stories. And that's what I try to do with every book. Okay, so there's so many like tangents I want to go off on just off of what you said in the last like minute and a half. First tangent, first tangent, who's your favorite superhero? Oh my gosh, it changes constantly. I was a big Avengers person when the first movies came out. I saw them in theaters three times in high school. Me and my younger brother, that was our thing is we would go see all the superhero movies in theaters together. So I really did like Avengers. I was really big into Iron Man at that time, like the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man. Um, but I always come back to X-Men. I don't super keep up on it, but like I have to poke my head in every once in a while and see what's going on. Um, and I really love Gambit. He's a favorite. Um, I like Jubilee and I like Jean Grey. So those are some of my favorite X-Men. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. I was like, I have to ask because we're big superhero nerds in this house. So I was like, I got to ask. I got to see what your favorite was. Um, second tangent is... I was the same way when I was a kid, like interview with the vampire um, oh, yeah. and Helsing, all these kinds of uh, stories I freaking loved, especially in movies. And I just want to say that the fact that you like the 2004 Van Helsing makes my heart so happy because yes. that is like such a guilty pleasure in this house. Like we freaking love that movie and like people give it such a bad rap, I feel like. And it's, it's such, such it's so much fun. It's yeah. so much fun. Okay. So that was I, the second tangent. <laughs> no, that's fine. I am not going to get too far down a tangent about this, but I do love that film. And whenever anyone asks me hmm. about the inspirations behind A Dowry of Blood specifically, I have to call that one out because I love what that movie does with the brides. Like they are scenery chewing over the top, gorgeous, just like 
larger than life characters, but you get these really interesting glimpses of their inner world and their little family feuds and their relationships with Dracula. And that was the dowry of blood seed. Like I saw that when I was like 14 and I was like, I'm going to do vampire bride someday. And it took like another, you know, 10 years for me to come back around and actually do that. But it was the seed that started it all. (laughs) And now that you've said that I can totally a hundred percent see that. And I'm never going to be able to watch Van Helsing again without thinking, huh, this is where Diary of Blood came from. This is amazing. Makes me happy. (laughs) So thank you. You totally changed how I view that movie now. So let's dive in though, uh, because your next book, An Education in Malice, it comes Mm -hmm. out when we're talking, we're talking um, in February, but it comes out at the end of February. And it's influenced by the vampiric story Carmilla, while Mm -hmm. your most previous book, A Diary of Blood, like we just kind of talked about, was influenced by Dracula and his brides and stuff. So what specifically about these kind of dark gothic tales kind of captured your interest and made you want to do your own take on them? There's so much here. It's it's a really rich text. Um, but truly, I think I'm most drawn to in gothic fiction and in gothic media. There's this really interesting juxtaposition of light and dark, beautiful and grotesque, erotic and terrifying. It's a genre that can really hold dissonant energies together and create something unique and beautiful. Um, There's also a lot of room for playing with um, the things that frighten us, cultural taboos, sexual taboos, kind of the the deep dark desires of the id. But there's also so much hope, um, the opportunity for redemption through love, through self-sacrifice. That's a strong theme in a lot of Gothic works, especially classical Gothic works. And that just really speaks to me on a, on a deep level. There's also tends to be um, not in all Gothic fiction, but in a good bit of it, especially if we're talking about like Anne Rice's influence, it's a heavy religious overtones and use of religious imagery. And I'm someone who's always been fascinated by spirituality. I have a master's degree in theology um, and I love art that isn't afraid to play with religious symbolism and themes and say something really complex with those themes. So it's always kind of been uh, a home base for me in terms of genre. Now, where did your love of vampires specifically come from? Like, what's the first instance when you were younger where you were just like, God, I love this. (laughs) That would really go back to like my teen years. I think I found a lot of refuge in vampire stories, particularly Um, Anne Rice books, particularly the Van Helsing movie. I know it's like campy, but it's a comfort watch for me. Um, And other stories, just like vampires showing up in like some of the YA I was reading. Um, And I think that just has to do with a a lot of the themes that I resonate with in the gothic genre are kind of distilled down really particularly into vampires. And I'm also fascinated by like, what makes a life worth living? Is immortality worth it? What do we do with that fear of death? How does it motivate us and push us forward to live or to not live? And there's just some really interesting things you can do there. So I think it was natural that I would be drawn to those stories. They also tend to be incredibly queer coded and or explicitly queer and as a young bisexual person growing up in the south um who was dealing with a lot of like existential ennui um there was a lot of myself that I saw reflected in those stories now your third book which is coming out later this year it's evocation evocation yes uh is uh not vampire inspired at least not from what I've been able to tell so what made you what made you want to step away from that for this one 
That's a great question. And no one has asked me that yet. Um, so for all of my love for the Gothic genre and for vampires, I, I do feel like I've said a lot of what I want to say, um, with those themes and in that genre thus far, it doesn't mean I won't return to it in the future, but I've spent a couple of years really living in that world and developing, um, these stories and the, spin that I chose to put on the vampire story, at least in this season of my life, um, is one that's kind of heavy and deals a lot with manipulation and interpersonal abuse and abuse in intimate relationships and um, gaslighting and grooming, a lot of pretty heavy topics. And I love getting my hands dirty in the dark, but I also was really craving something that was a little bit more playful, a little bit more fast paced. Um, and that just had a totally different tone and atmosphere to it. Um, and I've been working on the building the world that evocation takes place in the Summoner Circle series for like six years. So it really is something I've returned to again and again, that is very comforting to me. And that gives me a lot of space to play. And so I'm so happy that those stories are finally going to be out in the world for people to enjoy too. So if you're in the mood for something dark and a little bit sad, um, you have the vampire books. And if you're in the mood for something that is more of like a fun, sexy soap opera about the power of love, you have the Summoner Circle series. So I, I, I have the range, I hope, and I like to give options. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to read that one. Cause like I said, your writing is very addictive to read. There's Thank something you. about the way that you craft your scenes and you craft your sentences. It's just, it's chef's kiss. They're absolutely beautiful. But so an education malice, like I kind of mentioned, it is inspired by Carmela. So I mm -hmm. do want to know why you chose kind of that route with this book and where, what made you read Carmela and go, I want to do a book on that. And then also it's set in a dark academia setting. So what made you want to place this story in the confines of a university? Yeah, I'll answer the question in two parts. First of all, Carmilla kind of looms large in history in queer literature and in Gothic literature. It does predate Dracula and it's pretty explicitly sapphic, um, especially for the time period. Um, and there's just so much good stuff to dig into with the relationship between the two women in that book. And it's also got great, you know, kind of cuckoo bananas over the top gothic themes and um, really beautiful atmosphere. And so I was interested in the book. I read it and I really enjoyed it. And I said, oh, it would be so fun to kind of continue my, my vampire universe with another gothic retelling. Um, and some of it, so that's kind of the form. And then some of it was also the function of the conversations I had with my publisher. My publisher was like, we love Dowry. We'd love to see you do more vampires. And we'd love to see it in a, in a historical setting and maybe return to a Gothic classic. And when they said that, my immediate response was we have to do Carmilla. Um, so it was a very natural choice. Uh, but it did arise because of some conversations I had had with my publisher as well, where they kind of gave me a couple of options or some parameters to be creative in. And I find that sometimes having some parameters to be creative in is almost more inspiring than just having a blank page and the green light from the people you're working with to do whatever. Um, so it's really fun. And then in terms of the dark academia setting, 
I was heavily involved in the dark academia subculture when I was a little bit younger, when it was still mostly on Tumblr and before it had had this huge cultural renaissance where it's now a really big fashion and aesthetic trend. And there's a lot of more options for dark academia books and pieces of literature and music and film than there were when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I made a lot of really good long-term friends through that community. I learned a lot about myself and there was just something really special about connecting to mostly other young people um, through these very out of time uh, pieces of literature that it had such a huge impact on us. Things like Brides Had Revisited and The Secret History and Maurice. Um, and I had always hoped I would be able to kind of add my voice to the canon of Dark Academia, but I wanted to do it um, in a way that felt authentically me. I wanted to do it right to the best of my ability. And I wanted to engage with some of the stickier themes that I had seen in other dark academia works. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead, but for example, um, one of the main themes in education and malice is this very close bordering on inappropriate relationship between a professor and her two students. And that arose in part because I read The Secret History a couple of times and I was reading about Julian and Henry's relationship and how it transgressed so many boundaries um, but was ultimately not very good. And I really wanted to explore that. And I wanted to, I wanted to make it gay I wanted, or specifically sapphic. So that was very, very fun. And you do a very good job of writing this kind of uneven power dynamic between Carmilla and Laura and then their professor, De La Fontaine. And it's it's so captivating to read because it didn't go where I thought it was going to go. But at mm -hmm. the same time, it was better than what I ever expected. And the way it's just it's so good. This book is <laughs> just so, so it's just it's so good. And honestly, like that that uh, portion of the book, kind of that uneven power dynamic and how it changes as, you know, Carmilla and Laura get closer mm -hmm. and explore their relationship. Like it was just, it was so interesting to read. So I'm very, I'm very happy that you chose to explore that because it really does add a huge layer of, of depth to this book. Now, the book also explores kind of several different kinds of love and obsession. You know, for example, you know, unlike the relationship with De La Fontaine, you know, the relationship between Carmilla and Laura, it's it's not about power or manipulation. It's about, you know, these two young girls trying to figure out their feelings for one another. And, you know, without giving too much away, you know, De La Fontaine also has a relationship that she has to explore and make some very hard choices about. So why were these layers important to the story, you know, the characters and kind of their development? Something I really tried to keep in mind when I was developing this story was that it had to, as a companion novel, stand completely alone in isolation and be satisfying to read as a standalone, but it also had to be in direct conversation with A Diary of Blood, and it had to do things that were complementary to A Diary of Blood without repeating the same beats, which was actually very challenging to do. I would argue sometimes it's harder to write a companion novel or to write a satisfying sequel than it is to write um, a standalone that lives in its own enclosed universe. So I, again, I'm trying not to spoil too much about either book, but it was important for me to explore power and manipulation in a new way in an education and malice. And I was also really interested in the echoes of abuse and how we learn 
oftentimes um, harm from the hands of those who have harmed us. And I really wanted to explore that and see how, um, you know, bad behavior can kind of echo and evolve and change as it gets passed from person to person to relationship to relationship. And I really also wanted to ask, what does it take to break that cycle? What does someone need to do to step out of that cycle of harm and that cycle of trauma? What you have to sacrifice? Um, and I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't the same answer that a dowry of blood gave to how do you emancipate yourself from an abusive situation? Um, so that is me dancing around both spoilery, and <laughs> but uh, that is, that is where the impetus came from. Now I didn't send this question to you ahead of time, but I want to ask because I'm very oh. interested. So there is again, without giving too much away, there is a very sexy, very explicit scene in this book, which is <laughs> like I said, very, very sexy. Why did you choose to make this book explicit? Like, why was this scene, like I said, without giving too much away, why was it important for you to have that scene in there? So yeah, there is a big, I call it like a set piece scene. That's what I, that's how I outline them in my head. Kind of these, these big, intense, beautiful scenes where there's a lot to look at. And there's a lot going on emotionally. And um, there is a big set piece sex scene in um, Education of Malice that I'm really excited to share with people. For me, because I write fantasy romance, sexuality is something I'm endlessly fascinated with. And I'm a really big advocate for kind of um, being fearless and being authentic and being vulnerable in the way that we write about sexuality and not being afraid to do things that are a little out there or to tackle difficult themes or to present complex relationships if that is what feels authentic to you and the story you want to tell. Um, and I really wanted to do that here. And I wanted to give those characters that opportunity to have this really big um, meeting of the minds, physical meeting, emotional catharsis in a scene that was also imbued with sexuality and in some ways imbued with kink and imbued with their own particular relationship dynamic and kind of let the relationship be represented in a physical way as well as in a intellectual or an emotional way. And a lot of your characters in this book are queer, sapphic. Apart from it being uh, inspired by Carmilla, why was it important for you to have these kinds of characters in your books? Most of my characters are queer. I do occasionally write uh, a straight person and I love them very much, but I would say oftentimes my characters are on that spectrum. I tend to write a lot of bisexual characters because that's my lived experience. And that is the expansive way in which I view people and human relationships. And I think representation is very important, but I think again, beyond that, it comes down to writing with authenticity, writing fearlessly, um, writing stories that I feel like I can I can stand next to and be proud of even into the future. Um, and also just reflecting the diversity of, of lived human experience and diversity of communities and and showcasing these, these um, inter-community conversations and these subcultures that I've been a part of since I was young. Um, so it was a very natural choice for me. Now, one of those characters, Delafontaine, who's in An Education of Malice, she is honestly one of, I think, my favorite characters that you've written. Thank and you. I was not ex and I was not expecting her to be one of my favorite characters when I first started reading An Education of Malice. But she's so 
complicated and she's nothing like what I expected her to be. And she's just, and she's so wonderfully morally gray. And I love myself a good morally gray character. (laughs) But the way that the book is written, you could have very easily made her this bad guy in this book. You could have made her the ultimate, again, I I don't want to give too much away, but (laughs) you could have, you could have taken a path with her where she was the true antagonist of this book and you Mm -hmm. didn't. Like I said, she's very morally gray. She's very complex. So was this something that you knew you wanted to do with her character right off the bat? Or was it just something that kind of naturally progressed? I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm so glad that you liked Ella Fontaine because she's one of my favorite characters I've ever written. I am really fascinated by her. I mean, I developed her, but like I am endlessly fascinated by her. And, um, you know, I think everyone when they finish a book and it's out in the world you always have those things you're like this is something I could have done differently and uh, I think about her a lot and I almost wish there was more of her in the book even though there's quite a lot of her in the book already Um, I started from the beginning very intentionally trying to develop her as a ambiguous morally gray character because again I had done a big bad narcissist before in A Dowry of Blood like there are some humanizing elements to Dracula I personally think so, but ultimately we are seeing him through the eyes of someone he's been abusing for hundreds of years. Um, and there is a complexity and a depth to that, but for the the story to function the way it needed to function and to reach the climactic endpoint I was building towards, he had to be the big bad. There really was no redemption arc for him. And arguably I wouldn't say Della Fontaine necessarily gets a redemption arc, but she does, she is given the space to be very complex and morally gray. And you can, I hope kind of see her wrestling with ethical issues, going back on her word, betraying her own promises to herself and other people, and then trying to to build something from what she's broken at the end. Um, And I think oftentimes we don't give women the space to be that complex in stories. Um, I think sometimes, especially when we are talking about harm and abuse in intimate relationships, whether that is um, between a professor and a student or between um, someone in a sexual relationship or anything like that, um, what is easiest for us in order to cope and in order to try to make society better is to always assume the person doing the harm is um, either, ooh, woo, so sad, needs a redemption arc. They're just doing it because, you know, they feel sad or they've been hurt. Or on the other end, we villainize them so much that we're like, well, they're just a total monster. Nobody in their right mind would ever do this. Like they're just a narcissist. They're they're not complex. They don't have an inner world. Um, and I really hope with Della Fontaine that I was able to give her a little bit more of it in her world, even though we don't get her POV in this book. It's just through the perspective of the girls, Laura and Carmilla. But I do hope that some of her complexity comes out. And I hope it does. Um, I hope it's uh, entertaining and satisfying. But I also hope that it starts some conversations around why people do the things they do and what responsibility we have to the people we've harmed once we have harmed them. Um, I don't think the story ends there. No, she's, like I said, she was nothing like what I expected her to be because I expected her to just flat out be the big antagonist of this. But she, she's just, she's so layered that you can't (laughs) just be like, no, she's the bad guy or okay, she's good. Like she's, she truly is a true 
morally great character and she's fantastic i honestly i loved her in this i do want to ask why did you choose to do povs of both carmilla and laura this book went through so much development this book tried to kill me um but i lived <laughs> i lived <laughs> um there was a i had a lot of conversations with trusted people and i think i went through four drafts four complete drafts before I turned it into my editor for developmental edits, which is a little extreme, even for me, someone who tends to rewrite and change big plot points as I go. Um, so initially it was only supposed to be in Laura's POV. Um, and it was also su supposed to be written as a diary. And then I realized that, that was very difficult. <laughs> like the epistolary format works for a diary of blood. And I would love to do a book in diary form and I would love to do epistolary again. But for an education of malice, I was like, I need to get out of her head a little bit. I need the camera to be able to see more of the world. And I also really wanted to know what was going on with Carmilla because I felt in the first couple of drafts, because Laura is so starstruck and so obsessed with Carmilla and she's lived a very sheltered life, you really only saw Carmilla as a projection of Laura's desires or of Laura's frustration or of Laura's love. Um, and I wanted to give her a little bit of a more fully fleshed out character. So that was a big motivation for the reason that I um, gave Carmilla a POV. And then I ended up really liking writing in her POV. And I think the book is like 60, 40 split Laura and Carmilla now. It's almost 50, 50. There's a good bit of Carmilla in the book. Um, but as an author, one of my my great weaknesses is I, I tend to be like, I wanna do all the POVs. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a restraint to just do two. Um, there are three in uh, evocation, yeah, in evocation, and there's two in education of malice. And I also toyed with the idea of putting like one or two Delafontaine chapters in there, but I think it really would have broken the illusion and broken the spell of who she is. I think keeping her a little bit mysterious and only seeing her behavior and her motivations through the lens of how the girls perceive that um, adds kind of a, a mysterious quality to the story and, and keeps her enigmatic and keeps the audience on their toes. So that's why I chose to do that. But yeah, I just, we needed to see more of the world and I ended up really liking Carmilla's POV and uh, I like the ways in which she's different than Laura. And I think um, it gives the audience a little bit more to look at and a little bit more people to empathize with or to have a favorite character between the two. So I ended up really liking that decision. And it it does allow you to empathize with, especially with Carmilla, because her as a character, she's she's much more, at least in the beginning, like when we're meeting her through Laura's eyes, she's a very complex character. And there's a lot that happens with her character and her involvement throughout the book. And so it really did allow us, at least as a reader, to get more of her and to understand her a little bit more. And it's honestly like the dual POV works perfectly in this book. I okay. do want to ask for more like the writing side of things. Because I'm also a writer. Yes. And I, I write gothic fantasy. You have two books coming out this year, like we've established. How has that been? Having like two the, books instead of one. The technical and production aspect of doing yeah. two in yeah. So um, I'm in a season of my career where I am very lucky and very blessed to be booked out doing double years for the next couple of years because I have two simultaneous series coming out. I have the Summoner Series Circle with um, Angry Robot. That's uh, four books. 
And then I have an, a yet untitled, look for the title soon, um, erotic romanticy series trilogy coming out with Orbit. Very different books, but all, all romance, fantasy, soap opera goodness. Um, and we can talk a little bit about how that ended up happening, but in terms of technicality and production, the reason I'm able to do this is because I have exceptional publishing teams, truly. Both of my editors are very good at their job in terms of editing my work and bringing out the best in me, asking the hard questions and keeping me on deadline. But they're also deeply gracious people who always check in with me about my energy, about my commitments, always make space for me and also make space for um, the other editors, uh, which is really nice. And my publicity teams talk to each other. Um, the design teams know about each other. Um, so they're both of my publishers are kind of off doing their own thing, taking care of me in different ways, like amicably divorced parents, <laughs> but, uh, the communication has been really excellent and we have moved deadlines. We have moved publication days. Um, I famously was three months late turning in an education in malice. I just, I kept rewriting it and needed more time. And my editor was awesome. She said, we will move the date if you need to. Your mental health and your physical health is the most important thing here. And I want this book to be the best it can be, but I want you to be safe and sane first and foremost. So that has been awesome. And I don't think I could do this if I didn't have such great teams backing me up, UK and US and from two different publishers. And that was going to be one of my questions is, how do you handle your, especially your mental health and, you know, the relationships that you have when you're writing two books at once? Because it's hard enough for me to balance all of that stuff with one book, you know, that I'm writing and I'm not even, you know, I don't even have a contract. Like, how do you balance and manage all of that stuff? It has been a work in progress. It has been a learning journey. And I have had to step back from certain responsibilities and commitments because of that. At a, at a point last year, I was working as an agent. I was writing basically full-time and I was also working at a day job nine to five, which was just pure insanity. Um, and I definitely felt my health suffer because of that. And I felt my relationship suffer because of that. Um, so I've made some sacrifices. I've learned to say no more. Like being this booked, it just means that I, I can't say yes to a lot of spontaneous things and spontaneous projects, which is a bit of a sacrifice. Um, but I also have found ways to find creative joy and to be spontaneous. Um, even though I, I'm on this really tight publishing schedule, um, you know, even if it's just making up stories with my friends or writing fan fiction or watching movies or reading books or talking about stories of the people that I love in my life, that has kept that joy alive and it's it's made it not feel so much like work. And I do really believe in and I'm passionate about the series that I'm working on. And I'm just so lucky I get to do it. So I want to do it well. But I think in terms of actionable tips, having a routine, having a schedule helps me a lot. Having people in my life to keep me grounded and to keep me sane helps. Um, and also just taking my own responsibility for myself in those relationships and not letting my stress bubble over too much into my intimate relationships has been a learning curve. But I think the thing I'm most grateful for this year is the people in my life who love me and who have taken really good care of me. Um, and I hope I'm able to take really good care of them in return. So it's, it's a circle of mutual care. And that's how we're able to do it. And I do think that 
again, there's some things that are more complex and demanding about doing a series, but for something like the Summoner's Circle series, where I've lived in that world in my head for like six or seven years, it really does feel like returning to old friends and returning to home turf when I'm developing a new story in that world. Um, and that has been really helpful too. There is a level of familiarity and kind of already being in the groove and, and having a vision. So I don't have to do quite as much of like, I'm going to scrap it and rewrite it and completely replot it. Cause I'm pretty notorious for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like that may or may not have happened once or twice before. Yeah. Well, I am, I'm very impressed with everything that you are able to put out. And it, it makes me happy that you have, like you said, a, a fantastic team on from both of your publishers, Angry Robot and Orbit, uh, because the the books that you put out, I feel like could very easily suffer with the fact that you're doing two books, but they don't like they are freaking fantastic. Like you don't allow what's going on with you to affect your writing itself. Like your writing is gorgeous. And I'm, I'm honestly like, I'm just, I'm so ridiculously impressed that you can put out so many books <laughs> and you're going to continue to put out that many books. Uh, at the quality that you're able to produce. So that's absolutely fantastic. I do want to ask, who is your favorite character that you've written? Um, this is It can be someone on evocation if you want. Yeah, it is. It's David. <laughs> it's David? It's David. So for those of you who don't know, evocation is a urban fantasy romance uh, set in Boston in modern day that circles around the lives and loves of magical practitioners. So like sorcerers, wizards like all all kinds of real world magical traditions um and david is a high-powered asshole recovering alcoholic lawyer who is also a psychic medium who was like a childhood prodigy psychic medium so on the one hand he's like very much the overpowered power fantasy kind of character but on the other hand, the whole story is him getting his ass kicked and learning to ask for help. And I find that really satisfying. But yeah, he's my favorite. I never get tired of him. I think he's really complex and interesting. He really has a heart of gold underneath all the snark. Um, and I I love putting him into situations with the other characters in that book because the way they play off each other is just really, really fun. Um, and there's also a lot of me and David. So there is a bit of narcissism in that answer. But he's a fave right now. But I also really like Della Fontaine. I think she lives in my head rent-free. Like a lot of my characters, I won't necessarily think about them if I'm not actively writing the book or actively brainstorming. But she'll just pop into my head sometimes and I'll be like, I wonder what she's up to. <laughs> oh, she's, like I said, she's absolutely, she's fantastic. And honestly, she's one of, I think, the best characters I've read this year. And I've, I've read a lot already this year. And she's... I don't know. There's something about her. She's just, she's fantastic and she's interesting. Um, with an education of malice, having all of these kind of incredible themes and stuff going on in this book, if your readers could take away one thing from reading an education in malice, what would it be? What would you want it to be? That is such a good question. I think I crammed a lot of themes into an education of malice. Like I just kind of dumped a lot of my dark academia thoughts into the book. Um, and I think there's a lot of different things you could take away from this story, but maybe one that I hope resonates with people is that 
making good art and living for making good art is not worth your suffering. Um, there's a lot of conversations in the book, especially between the two girls, about what they're willing to suffer for art, um, what the life of an artist looks like, and they have kind of different approaches to it. And I hope something people get out of the book is that you can make good art without being tortured and miserable. I like that. God, this book is so good. This book is so <laughs> freaking good. It really is. It's, I'm not a rereader. Very rarely do I reread books just because there's so many new ones that I want to get to. Mm -hmm. But I feel like at some point this year, I'm going to have to reread this book because it's, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. And honestly, I could spend an hour just telling you how good this book is. But <laughs> let's transition to our closing questions. You can be as in-depth as you want or as succinct as you want. Okay. So what is your favorite genre to read? Uh, that is like a non-answer because I read so many different kinds of genres. I think the two right now that I probably read the most of for pleasure are uh, nonfiction and romance. What is your favorite kind of subgenre of romance? Um, I read a lot of queer historicals, speculative romance, like fantasy romance. Um, and I also love a good um, contemporary, like kink club sort of story. So like a nice, dramatic, angsty, kinky contemporary is really fun. Love those. Uh, but I also just, I love a good historical, especially if it's queer, but not even necessarily um, a good Regency, a good Victorian story, especially if it takes place in a setting or a time period I don't know a lot about. Um, so I get to learn as I read. I find that really gratifying. What's the best, because I want to switch to nonfiction because I don't get that answer very often. So what is like the best kind of nonfiction book that you've read recently that you would recommend to people? I read a really fantastic book called Radical Intimacy, I believe it was, by Sophie K. Rosa. I might be making that name up entirely. The book is called Radical Intimacy, and it's a very accessible, very heartfelt, but incisive sort of manifesto on how to live and work and make art and rear babies and die well in intentionally anti-capitalist, mutually supportive communities. And it gave me a lot to think about. Um, and it just made me want to find more community in my regional area and reach out to my friends more and, and do more things together and kind of build a beautiful life with the people that I love in a more intentional way. Very nice. Now, if you could write one trope that you haven't written already, what would it be? Arranged marriage. Yes, I love arranged marriage. I really I do love arranged marriage if there's if it's an arranged marriage I am seated I am devouring I am reading um and I do have an arranged marriage story in my head that I hope will see the light of day someday um and it's common but it's not in any of the I don't think I've done arranged marriage in any of the books that I have um out or announced but hopefully someday arranged marriage Knock on wood, it'll happen someday. Now, what are you currently reading and what is on your TBR list next? I actually read a good bit in January and I'm kind of an on again, off again reader. Like I'll get really pulled into work and writing or being social and I won't read for a month or two and then I'll read like six books in a month. So it really depends. I also listen to a lot of audiobooks and I read in physical and in Kindle. 
But the one I have that I'm starting next is The Hunting Party by Lucy Foley, which is a thriller. It was recommended to me by my fiance who reads more thrillers than I do. And I haven't read a good thriller in a while, so I'm excited. Very nice. Now, what is the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received in regards to your writing? Oh my gosh. Oh man. Um, I have been incredibly lucky in that I have had the opportunity to meet a good amount of my like writing heroes, um, almost all of whom have been incredibly kind to me and who have given me really good advice. So I have these like little nuggets that I've gotten from some of those meetings or some of those conversations or phone calls. Um, and I think the advice that I always give people is to write towards joy and to write towards excitement and to write towards that kind of scary feeling of, oh, this, this is really exciting to me. This feels really aligned with what I have to say. And that's a little bit scary. Um, but the, some of the best writing advice that has been given to me, I think is very similar. It's just been to write fearlessly to really write without fear. Um, and that can be very hard, especially once you've had some um, success with the public and once you've had some success finding readers, because you really don't want to let people down. Like when you are someone's favorite author, the feeling of disappointing them, that fear can be very loud. However, I think it's important to write authentically, to write for yourself, to do something a little bit dangerous, to do something a little bit out there if that's a story you want to tell and to stick to your guns about it. Because we only live once. There's only so many books in me. I could die tomorrow. So I, I really need to write the books that I'm most energized about and that fill me with the most joy. So that's my, my advice. I love that. Now, if you weren't an author and money, experience, education, none of that mattered, and you can do anything else in the world besides be an author, what would you do? That's hard because this is my dream job. I want to do this ever since I was a kid and I get to do it and I get paid to do it. It's crazy. Um, and I'm also not going to cheat and say some other kind of writer, like a copywriter, because I think that is also cheating. Um, there's a lot of things I'm really interested in. It would probably be, well, actually, I know exactly what the answer is because I went to school for it. I was going to be a priest. Um, so I probably, if I didn't end up writing smutty romance novels, I probably would have ended up being an Episcopalian priest because I love that one-on-one -on -one connection with people and giving them spiritual direction and helping them with spiritual formation. Um, and I really do believe in the power of communities and the power of spirituality, despite all the all the everything that the church can come with, all the hypocrisy and, and the trauma. Um, I do think it's something worth fighting for. And what I mean by that is fighting for spiritual communities of care. Um, and I probably would have ended up in that world. I love that. I did not know that about you. That's amazing. I love yes. that. Yes. Now, if you could invite any person over for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? Anais Nin. She's my problematic fave. And Anais Nin, do you not know who Anais Nin is? It's okay. If you no, know. I don't. She is a, a writer from kind of like the 20s, 30s. Um, she lived in Paris and was famously kind of wow in a meeting of the minds and an affair with Henry Miller and his wife, but she's most known for being a diarist. And I just really resonated with her diaries. She was a really complex woman. Um, talk about Morley Gray. Um, 
but she she just wrote again with this fearless authenticity about her longing for connection, her longing for love, her longing to make art. And she wrote, I have a vintage copy over here. She wrote some really good thought provoking and kind of controversial erotica in her life as well. Um, and so I really, I, I look up to especially female writers who can write about subjects that are societally taboo with vulnerability and with fearlessness. So I just think she would be really interesting. She was, her diaries are wild. Uh, like, yeah, she was, she was a wild, wild person, but I would love to pick her brain. I'll have to, I'll have to check her out. Cause yeah, I don't think I've heard of her before, but she sounds very, very interesting and very complex. So I'll have to check her stuff out. Now, if you can invite any fictional person over for dinner, who would you invite? Oh, I never know how to answer this one. I think it's cheating to say any of my own characters, so I'm not going to do that. Um, maybe let's go with a classic. Let's say Lestat from uh, The Vampire Chronicles, just because I know it would be entertaining. Do I think we would get along? No. Do I think he would be a good house guest? No. Would it be a night to remember? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it would be a heck of a night. That's for sure. <laughs> now, where is a place that you haven't visited that you would like to both domestically and internationally? I would love to go to Prague. I wanted to go to Prague since I was little. Um, my fiance wooed me long distance across oceans by sending me a postcard from Prague when we were first talking, when we first met. And it just, it has a very romantic um, connotation in my mind and I would love to go well isn't that fancy making the effort I like it <laughs> now what about domestically um domestically New Orleans is my favorite city in America and I would love I would love to go to like <laughs> I would love to go to like Sedona like a really crunchy new age desert city and just like go lay on a rock in the sun like a lizard with some crystals on me and just soak up the energy. Um, I think that would be a good time. I like it. The fact that you said crunchy and I knew exactly what you were talking about, like how to describe <laughs> that, that's fantastic. Now, what currently brings you joy? There's so much in my life that I'm grateful for and that really brings me joy. And I would have to say it's, it's a simple answer, but it's true. It's the people I have in my life and my intimate relationships. The people that I have surrounded myself with truly love me um, in a way that simultaneously asks me to show up as my best self, but also offers unconditional love. And I think that is something so rare and so valuable. So I'm very grateful for them. Very nice. Well, thank you Saint, so much for being here. It was an absolute honor to chat with you and with as insane as your schedule is, just thank you for taking the time <laughs> to do this. Like, like I said, I am just, I am beyond honored. I love your writing. I love your stuff. And I cannot wait to read a vacation. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Thank you for having me. This was great. My second guest today is a historical romance author who writes diverse characters in the Regency and Victorian periods. Her current series, The Luna Sisters, debuted last year with Anna Maria and the Fox, and the second one, Isabel and the Rogue, is out in June. She is a graduate of the University of Arizona, and in her past life, she owned a mystery shopping company and sold pecans for a large farm. When she's not writing, she's listening to true crime podcasts and pretending she's a domestic goddess while she wrangles her spirited brood of children with her patient husband in Arizona. Please welcome Liana De La Rosa. 
Well, welcome, 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 Lana. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I will 100% be the first person to admit that I am not usually a historical romance fan. I like, I just like contemporary. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I freaking loved Anna Marie and the Fox. And you were one of the main people I wanted to see when I went to SimulatCon last year. Aww, I'm so glad. <laughs> I am just, I'm so honored to have met you and I'm so honored to have you here. And I'm so excited for your upcoming book, which we'll talk about that in a little bit, but welcome, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing awesome. I'm really excited to talk with you as well. Good. Okay. So let's just jump right in. This is the question that I start all my interviews off with. Why did you want to become a writer and how did it happen? So I think I've always been a writer in one way or, or another. I remember writing short stories when I was a, a kid and um, seeking out, I guess I was more of a reader for a long time than a writer, but I always had like ideas kind of bouncing around in my brain. And I never really considered being a writer myself until I was, oh gosh, I was a mom of two. And I was in my 30s already, and I had um, become a stay-at-home mom, and I had a colicky, <laughs> my younger son was very colicky, and I had a two-year-old at the same time, and I was I was just a tad overwhelmed. And I found my way back to romance novels. I used to read them when I was a teenager and like in my early 20s, um, and I kind of found my way back to them again um, during this time. Uh, and it was, I could read more because I had a Kindle. And so being able to just download whatever book I wanted um, from the Kindle library was like a huge deal for me. So I think it helped me, it was a escape and it kind of helped me um, to cope with the stresses of motherhood. And I have my husband to thank for the fact that I'm a writer now. Um, I didn't realize it until afterwards, until I was out of it, but Um, after my younger son was born, I was suffering from postpartum depression. I was just struggling and, you know, trying to be everything for everybody. And it was hard. I, like I said, I didn't even realize how hard it was until afterwards. And I, um, I've shared the story before. So some of your listeners might recognize it. I'm going to share it again because I mean that this is why I'm a writer. I um, was reading Sarah McLean's No Good Duke Goes Unpunished. I don't know if you've read any Sarah McLean historical Mm-mm, romances. I haven't. Oh my God, she's so good. She's like, she's one of the queens of historical romances and she's such an advocate for the romance genre and for other authors. She's fantastic. And she has um, this book called No Good Duke Goes Unpunished and it's the third book in a four book series. And at the end of this book, um, there is this big reveal about one of the main characters for the fourth book. And I did not see the reveal coming. Like it blew my mind Uh, to the extent that when my husband came home later that day from work, he was like, you know, how was your day? And instead of talking about the kids, instead of talking about anything else, I was like, let me tell you about this book I read because I didn't have anyone else to like share my excitement with. So I remember I had like a crying baby on my hip and I was telling him all about this book. And when I got done, he took our son from me and kind of, you know, held him himself. And he's like, I haven't seen you this excited or at like uh, lively about something in a long time. And it's true. I hadn't been. 
And he said, have you ever thought of being, you know, writing your own story of being a writer yourself? And I'm kind of embarrassed now, but I think it speaks to kind of the mindset I was in at the time, because my response was, I'm not smart enough to write the kind of books that I like to read. And he gave me that like all suffering, don't be, you know, don't be an idiot. Of course you are kind of look. And he was like, so why don't you learn? And I was like, oh yeah, what don't I learn? And I want to say I joined RWA, Women's Writers of America by the end of the week and started to just kind of learn and, you know, figure out how to craft a story and start brainstorming my own story. And so that was, I want to say it was in uh, 2013. So it's been like 10 years since I've been kind of on this path. And I was um, blessed enough that, you know, eventually I wrote that book and then I wrote another book and then I was able to get an agent and a publishing deal. And um, I don't, maybe eventually I would have found my way onto this path. I'd like to think I would have, but it was my husband who was like, Hey, why don't you give it a try? And I'm, he's still like my biggest encourager now. But one thing everyone always asks me is, has he ever read any of your books? And he hasn't, he hasn't read a single one and that's okay. Because he makes it possible for yeah. me to write those books. And he is like my biggest cheerleader. So yeah, that's that's how I became a writer. <laughs> well, and sometimes that's all it takes, just someone to plant that seed. And then you're just like, oh my God, like I can actually do this. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I could totally learn how to do this. So that's incredible. And that's so nice that you have his support. Absolutely. Like, my uh, My boyfriend, we've been together 11 and a half years. And like we were best friends for five years before we started dating. So like he's been through every single career change I've practically had at this point. And he has always been, bless his heart, he has always been so supportive of like my reading addiction, my writing, like this podcast, but he is not a reader. Like he just, he yeah. does not read whatsoever, but he has been nothing but supportive. So that's amazing that mm-hmm. you have that because it really, it really is important to have those people that you love support you and you know that's all oh, that that's such a good story that makes me happy yes. and as someone also who deals with depression like I like reading is an escape for me absolutely and it's it truly is something that um can really change people's lives so like I like I haven't had children so I don't understand postpartum depression but like books saved my life mm-hmm. after a really bad car accident like my depression okay. was bad, like really, really bad. And books helped pull me out of that. So I'm glad that it brought you to this because your books really are amazing. And like I said, Thank I'm you. not usually a fan of historical fiction. Like <laughs> I just, I like the contemporary romance. That's just what I've always really kind of read. Um, But your books are so freaking good. Oh, so, I'm so glad. good job. Good job, hubby, for planting that seed. <laughs> I'm going to Watering it. Thanks. Please tell him. So now out of all the genres you could write, why romance and why historical? What is it about historical that kind of speaks to you? I couldn't imagine writing anything other than romance. Um, I just love a happy ending in anything, in like a movie, in like a, even like the books that aren't romances. If there's like a hint of something going on between the characters, like I am all about it. And I like that with romance novels, no matter what the characters go through, you are assured that they will be happy at the end. And in a world where so many things are uncertain 
and so much about life is unfair and you know out of our hands i i really hold on to the fact that at least within the pages of these books i'm guaranteed happiness and however those particular characters define happiness and um it it's just has always drawn me now as far as the historical part um i historical romance was my gateway into uh reading romance and it kind of makes sense for me as a person that i would be drawn to historical because i've always been kind of like a historical nerd um in one of my favorite things I still remember as like a teenager, like in English classes or whatever, is when my teachers would find a way to not just teach us a book, but also talk about what was happening during the time that the author wrote that book. Like, um, you know, maybe events in history that may have affected that book, all that sort of stuff I have always found really fascinating. And when I went to university, um, my major, actually I double majored in um literature and in history and nice then, and then when I was a senior uh I was suffering from a severe bout of senioritis <laughs> and I was just done with school so I dropped my history major to a minor because I had more English credits so I could do that so I graduated with an English degree and then a history minor and so I've always just kind of loved the combination of the two of them uh, and so when I was playing around with my own story ideas, it just made sense to my brain to write historical romance. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And what these 10 years that I've been kind of on this path, I will say that I do have some story ideas going forward that are not historical. And, um, I don't know what's going to become of them. Maybe they'll come to a bookstore near you in a few years. Maybe not. I have no idea. But um, I will say that it, even just coming up with those story ideas that were not historicals took a lot of, it took a lot of time because my brain just wants to uh, put everyone in cravats and ball gowns. And hey, know. there is nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. Now, are there specific periods uh, that you're like drawn to that you seem to be drawn to? So I've written Regency, I've written early Victorian, and I'm kind of writing like mid-Victorian right now. And I I think I like the Victorian era the best so far um, because it's still, so the times, especially under Queen Victoria, there like decorum was like so very strict and there was like all these primers for how young ladies should behave. And as far as like um, conservative social views, they were like as conservative as you can get during that time. And yet there was so much innovation happening. There was so much new um, technological advances um, occurring. Uh, and I love the juxtaposition of the two of those together. Um, so at least for the time being, when I think of writing historical, I, I at least want to set it probably post post 19 1850s rather because because of that because I, I really like the combo of the two and how they play off of each other these like conservative social norms paired with these very innovative um cutting edge new technologies emerging I just think that I love that I feel like there's a lot to play within that time frame it's a nice mesh it's a nice mm -hmm. time to kind of mesh 
Now, your first book in your current series, uh, it's focused around the Luna family and the mm-hmm. sisters specifically. There's three of them. Your first book is Anna Maria and the Fox, and the second is Isabel and the Rogue. Right. Now, and the third one will be about the third sister. So each of these three sisters are very different in a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Uh, how hard or easy was it, I guess, to differentiate each sister's voice kind of in their own books and make them so make them similar, but at the same time, make them so different and unique? Um, Honestly, I thought it would be harder than it was. I think the hardest part for me was in the very first book. And so in Anamari and the Fox, because I was also getting to know the three sisters at the same time. And I was operating under Anamari's point of view. So how she views her sisters, and then they start off the series, um, more adversaries than they are as friends and so um I guess looking at the sisters through Ana Maria's eyes in the beginning was kind of a challenge and then as I wrote them more and I became more comfortable um viewing their world through Ana Maria's eyes it became a little bit easier and when I was transitioning to writing Isabel's book I was a little worried about how how it would be to write from her point of view. I'm a very character-driven writer. So I, I really do like to kind of get into my character's heads and figure out how they view the world and kind of do my my very best to write from that perspective. And so I was a little worried about writing Isabel because she is such a, like a reserved character. She's much more quiet. She keeps her thoughts close to the vest. Um, and I, Ana Maria talks about that in the first book about not quite knowing what Isabel's thinking and um, how her sister kind of holds herself back. And so I was kind of apprehensive, like, oh, like how hard is it going to be to like get into her shoes and write her POV? And then I started writing and like Isabel was so loud for all that she's like quiet as a person, like her nature, her thoughts are so very loud and like vivid. And I loved writing her I loved it I loved how she views the world how she views herself how she views her sisters and once I kind of put on her shoes and like really got into her story was so much easier to write than I thought it would be and the same is true for Gabby's book because I've already written Gabby's book and um Gabby's so very different from Isabel so Isabel is reserved and kind of shy and Gabby is not reserved at all and is like quick to call people to the carpet and dress them down. And, you know, she's just all fire. And so I was really excited to write a, write her POV. And then she ended up turning out to be like, like have like this ooey gooey center that I was not expecting. And I, I think I like really, really love that when I think I know a character until I actually try to view the world through their eyes. And then they're nothing like what I thought. So I'm really glad that my experience writing the Three Sisters books has been in many ways very easy because they're, they're like their own distinct people that stepping into their shoes and writing from their point of view was more of a, a joy than it was a challenge, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Now, when you wrote Anna Marie and the Fox, did you know that you wanted to do a book for each sister or is that just something that naturally happened? I did. So I pitched um, the series 
or my agent pitched the series um, to publishers as a series. So the Luna sisters. So, and I knew going into it that there would be three books and one, the books would focus on each sister. I had a, like a kind of a general outline of what each book would be about, who they would be paired with, kind of an idea of maybe what tropes I would be playing with. Um, and for the most part, I stuck to kind of like that pre-publishing outline, even though some things changed as naturally happens when you're writing a story. But um, I always knew that each sister would have her book. She would have her time in the spotlight. And um, I'm so glad too, because writing the series, obviously they're sisters. And so they're in each other's books and it would have, I would, I myself as a writer would have felt cheated if I didn't get to spend time with each of them, ensuring that they each had their own happy ever after. That they each got their, their good ending. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, now I've only read Anna Maria. I haven't read Isabel and the Rogue yet. Fingers crossed that Berkeley coughs on, one Berkeley. up. Right. Come on, Berkeley, please, 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 please send me an arc. Um, But it seems like a reoccurring theme is going to be kind of the oppression of the sisters, um, you know, and how they feel in regards to their father, who in the books is Mm -hmm. still in Mexico. They are in England at this point. Now, specifically in Anna Maria, because like I said, I can't talk about Isabel, but in Anna Maria, why was going to London and learning to become her own kind of strong and independent self away from that overbearing father why was that such an important part of her journey? I think um, in many, in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways, I based Ana Maria a lot about my own experience being an eldest daughter, especially an eldest daughter in, in a Latino family. And I'm very blessed. I have very supportive parents. I have a father who... He would be my publicist if he could be. Um, that I like, I've always felt very supported and loved. However, being a Latina myself, I understand the pressures of family and of expectations. Um, and machismo is something that you know a lot of people within the Latina diaspora deal with, and is like a real thing. And so, when I was thinking about Ana Maria and her sisters, it it just made sense that that would be something that they would come across because sometimes it's like the people in your own family who do their best to keep you small than it is, you know, anyone you might encounter when you step out your front door. And I actually spent a lot of time thinking about their father. His name is Elias Luna. And he is like a self-made man. In many ways, he's very similar to Gideon Fox from Ana Maria and the Fox, both self-made men, both um, men who dealt with a lot of prejudices because of their, you know, their identities. And, you know, Gideon is a biracial man in, you know, Victorian England. Uh, Elias Luna was an indigenous man from, you know, a poor village in Michoacan. And so they've each kind of brought themselves up and managed to gain power and influence. And yet they both use that power and influence in very different ways. And so I liked that sort of positioning where, of course, the man that Ana Maria fell in love with would be mirror her father in some ways, but also not like in all the ways that mattered. He was very different. And so she's 
escapes from under his influence. She's like a continent away. And, and yet all the little things that he used to nitpick, uh, you know, to her about to drill in her head are things that she's encountering now, even now in London. And I just really liked that, that every chance that she had to kind of like possibly live the life that she wanted to live to embrace the anamaria that she wanted to be there were these little reminders that came from society you know trying to keep her in her place and in my vision like all those little reminders all those little nitpicks came in her father's voice because he was the first one to do that to her and so I felt like her falling for Gideon for getting being so different in the ways that mattered from her father was a little bit of of her reclaiming sort of her life and like finding what was important for her. And I will say that their father plays, definitely plays a role in Isabel's book um, and plays an even bigger role in Gabby's because that was going to be my next question is if that (laughs) continues and if that, that kind of relationship and issues, if they continued into the next couple books. It does, especially because their fathers shape so much of who they are and how they view the world. Um, Ana Maria talks about it and Ana Maria and the Fox about how Isabel was basically ignored because she was the sister who looked um, the most indigenous out of the three of them. She had the darker skin, the coarser hair, all that, you know, colorism is still a huge issue within the Latina community. And so she was kind of like a reminder of where he came from and and so he kind of ignored her and what does that do to a person right who's like ignored by their parents who is kind of brushed to the side and that's all stuff that Isabel is working through in her own book and then Gabby was the youngest uh of not just her sisters but of the family she was the one that you know her parents hoped would be a boy and she wasn't obviously she a girl and so she was like his last chance to have like that son to carry on his name and here she comes you know like a fiery Aries baby and like is not going to back down from anyone and I didn't even realize it until I was writing Gabby's book is how much she's like her father in so many ways like how they view the world is very not the same but it's very similar and um I thought I I enjoyed spending that time in Gabby's head and like figuring out why she is the way she is and how she, you know, how she, why she tackles things the way she does. And so that all comes back to their relationship with their father and with their mother too, right? Their, their parents, because, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, in a lot of ways, our parents have such a bearing on who we are as people and who we become, whether good or bad. And um, their father wasn't, the best warmest presence in their you know in their childhood and their lives but they all thankfully came out of it better people so um yes there will be more of him the like and it's funny because my editor made a comment when we were working through Isabel's book and she's like Liana please tell me is he gonna appear Elias Luna is he gonna appear on the page because I feel like I know him so well and like I want to actually meet him, meet him, like yeah. see him on the page and have him talk on the page. And I'm like, yes, he, he's coming. He will Is he coming be. Gabby's book? 
He is. He's okay. using Gabby's book. <laughs> I like as I was reading Anna Maria, I was like, at some point, if this dude, if he's still in these books, I was like, at some point he's gonna have to come over here to London or they're gonna have to go over to Mexico and they're gonna have to have a huge head to head about everything that's going on. So that makes me even more excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that nice. that happens in Gabby's book. Mm-hmm. And is Gabby's book, is that coming out next year? Yes. Can you in talk about that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't have like a release date or okay. anything like that, but I'm guessing maybe between April and July of next year, possibly. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> now, I do want to ask, this was not on the questions that I sent you, uh, but do you have sisters? I have one sister and one brother. So has your relationship with your siblings affected like you writing that that familial sibling relationship in your books has that affected oh, it at all or influenced it <laughs> you're oh, all 100 yeah <laughs> yeah especially me especially as an eldest daughter definitely and then my sister is the youngest and I see a lot of her in Gabby like obviously they're not the same person at all but there's inspiration there my brother is the middle and he's also like I see a lot of like Isabel in him but also it's a different dynamic because he's the only boy. So he's the only boy in a Latino household. So it's very different um, with him. But um, yeah, like that quiet intensity that Isabel has, my brother has it too. And there's some other like little similarity similarities, but oh, absolutely. And it's so funny. Um, I've received a lot of comments from readers about, oh, you've written like the sibling dynamics so well, like outlining like the oldest and the youngest, you know, in the middle to the extent that people will tag me in like videos or memes or stuff on social media, like, oh, Liana, this reminds me of your little sisters. And I always laugh because that's, that's so flattering. Like that's my job as a writer, right? Is to hopefully nail down that characterization and to make these three sisters feel relatable and if you read or see like a video depicting like familiar relationships and you think of Ana Maria, Isabel and Gabby well then I feel like I'm doing my job as a writer yeah I have I have one brother and there were moments in Ana Maria where I was like oh my god this is such a sibling thing that's happening and like I am not Latina but my boyfriend is Latino and his his sister is one of my best friends and it's mm-hmm. different between mm-hmm. the girl child and the boy child. Like it's just oh, absolutely it is. Yeah. So absolutely. I I really like though that sibling influence because it's it's true. Like I understand why people tag you because it's very you're like, she has to have freaking siblings. Otherwise, I don't know how <laughs> she's writing this so dang well. So I totally it totally makes sense now that I know that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> now, there are also a lot of kind of political happenings going on in Ana Maria, and you get a lot of very smart and nuanced discussions of class, diversity, human rights, all these kinds of things. You know, for example, the French occupation of Mexico and Gideon's push to abolish the Atlantic slave trade, um, specifically in Ana Maria. How did these, you know, these very real events influence the characters and kind of their motivation in the books? Fantastic question. I, um, normally when I set out to write a book, I, I start with the characters, like who I think they are, what I think their motivations are. 
And once I kind of feel like I have a grasp of, of them, like I, I won't ever fully know the character until I start writing them. But in that beginning stage, I kind of get an idea of, of how they view the world. And then I will go, and if I don't already know it, you know, what was happening in the world at that time, I will do research. Okay, well, what was, what sort of political events were happening at this time? What sort of um, big world events were occurring? And how would that affect my characters and what would they do? And so everything I knew about Gideon, um, he's like a Capricorn. He's very goal-driven, very serious, very like get the job done. And um, I knew, I, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you how I knew that his grandmother had been an enslaved woman. I, I don't know. Sometimes I just know things about characters. So I was like, okay, if this is his background, what does that mean? Like what was happening in the world at the same time that the French were occupying Mexico? Oh, well, the civil war. And I was like, oh, well, of course those two, you know, we can play with that. How can I play with that and incorporate that into each other? And um, that's kind of like how these sort of things start with me. Um, what I know about the character and then what I know is happening at the time the story is set and how I can use those um, events to influence or affect my characters. How would they respond in certain situations and whatnot? So that's sort of how it came about. And um, I actually had a conversation with a writer friend oh my gosh, like probably a few years ago, I was, I was writing, actually, I was preparing to write on a buddy in the Fox and I was kind of working through some stuff and I was um, complaining to my friend about why do I always get myself in the situation where I write about politics? Because Gideon is not my first politician main character. I've written two other ones and, um, I don't know why I do that to myself because I'm like having to research through past, you know, parliamentary procedures. Like there's like a lot of details that go into doing something like that. And then having to have my characters to convey these thoughts in a way that makes sense. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it can kind of be tedious when I'm planning it out. And I was complaining to her about why, do, why do I always do this to myself? And she said, you know, I think it's because you, share your worldview through your characters. So the things that are important to you or the things that when you view history that you find important, your characters find them important and you are telling your readers what's important to you while you write. So when I hear people talk about how reading isn't political or reading isn't whatever, I kind of giggle to myself because I'm like, oh my gosh, that's not true for me because I may not be the most vocal person, you know, on social media about my politics, but you read my books and you will know <laughs> where I stand on most things. So I don't ever, I don't ever go into it thinking I'm going to, I'm going to have this big nuanced, you know, conversation about um, say colorism and the Latina diaspora. Like, I don't think I don't ever go into it thinking I'm going to do that. I just let my characters exist in the world that I've created for them and I think just naturally how I use certain topics are just gonna come out of their mouths because that's that's how it sometimes works and not all the time obviously like my characters are fictional and you know sometimes oftentimes they say things that I don't agree personally with but um I just think it's important especially as a historical writer that the history that I 
focus on and that I choose to include says a lot about who I am as a person. I think that says it for everybody because, you know, what we choose to remember, what we choose to put a spotlight on, what we choose to discuss um, is important. It's a, it's what we're sharing with our readers. And so I hope I answered your question. <laughs> you did. No, and that's a very, <laughs> good, it's a very good answer. And honestly, like since just talking to you, you've changed my perspective on historical fiction just in general. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I need to give it a, I think I need to give it another go because you've, you've said some things that have really kind of stuck with me. So thank you for that. And I have to say, and I think Sarah McLean, I've mentioned her earlier. She's an author. Mm -hmm. Um, she has talked about how oftentimes historical romance is doing a lot to shine a light on modern day issues by amplifying the past because a lot of the issues that we deal with in present day are not new discussions they're not new issues there are something that have been around for a long time and so by by cloaking those issues within the past and within past situations by viewing them through like this historical lens in many cases it's a commentary on what is happening today and so um I think about that a lot when I read historical romance that sometimes um, these books that have dukes and governesses and fancy ball gowns and all this stuff, oftentimes they're providing a really cutting or a clear cut commentary on today's issues and just a, you know, in a costume, I guess you can say. Yeah. And I feel like from the historical fictions I've read, like, and off of what you just said, it shines a light more so, I think, than any other subgenre of romance that I've read. Mm-hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm gonna have to give historical fiction as a whole another, uh, another go. My wallet is not gonna like that, but <laughs> what are you gonna do? Oh no, darn, that's terrible! I have to buy more books. Uh huh. <laughs> How much of the political and kind of the class and um, the human rights issues? How much of that? transfers over to Isabel is that as prevalent as it is um in, in Anna Maria. Maria. Anna Maria so I will say that I mean they still appear but Isabel's a very different character so Anna Maria and Gideon had very big ideas right yeah. and they had very broad like goals you know Gideon's work in parliament incorporated so much more and um is uh, Ana Maria as the eldest sister um, was concerned about more, concerned about her sisters and concerned about all these other people. So in many ways, I feel like their book was more because of that. There was more incorporated into it. Whereas in Isabel's book, Isabel has a very specific goal in mind of what she wants. And throughout the whole book, she's working towards that. And I feel her world is smaller, right? She doesn't have the sort of worries that her that Anamidia has or Gideon has. And um, so in many cases, like there's not as many, I guess you can say issues um, in their book, but what does come up is more pertaining to who Isabel is as a person, the sort of prejudices prejudices that she's in, uh, encountered in her life and how her being a dark-skinned Mexican woman um, who does, who like has goals for herself um, and wants to do these things, how she can 
grasp those things when society wants, especially Mexican society at that time for, um, you know, upper class women wanted them to marry and have children and stay in the home. So um, in many ways, Isabel is pushing back against all of that. And um, there are some other issues that come up, which I thought were a lot of fun. And I didn't necessarily set out to write about them. They just kind of seamlessly <laughs> work their way in. Um, they, they have a discussion about uh, cultural um, uh, repatriation, basically like stolen cultural artifacts and relics, which is still something that people are trying to deal with to this day, um, you know, with the British Museum having, which I actually talk about in the author's note um, of Isabel's book, um, that I actually find so fascinating um, that I might write about that in future books. But anyways, so they they talk about other things, but I feel like the, the scope of it is on a much more intimate scale than it was in Anabody and Gideon's book. Can you tell us a little bit about what Isabel's book is about? Sure. Um, so Isabel is the middle Luna sister who's um, often been ignored and pushed to the side um, first by her parents and then kind of by society within London that they're now operating in because she is well reserved by nature. She's also the dark skinned sister. She, um, she has more of their um, indigenous their father's like indigenous looks and so she's dealt with more like prejudice than um her sisters have and she's kind of resigned herself to being like the forgotten sister until she has an opportunity to help mexico um who is still occupied by france at this time in collecting information um to pass along to basically the the fight in Mexico and so she uses her ability to be a wallflower to like you know operate under the radar um to to be able to advance this cause and be able to to spy essentially <laughs> on those in the ten. and so she thinks that she's like incognito and that no one's paying attention to her except someone is paying attention to her and that's Captain Sirius Dawson, who appeared in book one. He's one of Gideon Fox's friends. Um, you find out that he actually works for the British Home Office, which is um, kind of not like the FBI, but like, you know, they're they're handling like law enforcement issues within, um, you know, within England. And I'm sure there's someone listening right now going, that's not what they do, but I'm trying to <laughs> simplify it. Um so he works covertly for the home office. And so he agrees to help Isabel and um, shenanigans happen. Shenanigans <laughs> like, yeah. ensue. It's yes. My favorite kind. <laughs> there, I saw some like an early review say that they were, I, so I feel like I should caution people. The early reviewer said um, that she thought it would be more fast paced and like more hijinks, but it was a lot of it was Isabel like working through her stuff. And that is, that's true because um, I mentioned I'm like a character driven writer. So for me, I'm very invested in like what's happening between my character's ears and how they're like approaching the world. And so um, I fell a bit in love with Isabel while writing her. She's just a wonderful character. I mean, I think I'm very biased. And so um, it was fun to write serious 
like learning this stuff about her and kind of falling in love with her too so it was fun that's like a very condensed version i'm very excited as soon as we get off i am sending an email to berkeley so i'm very (laughs) i'm very excited for this book and your covers i just want to say the covers of this series are some of the most beautiful covers i think i've ever seen they are vibrant and gorgeous and they just they did an your team did an amazing job on them didn't they i am just so happy with them i had a very distinct um idea of what i wanted for each cover so far and i went to berkeley with like a pinterest board and like i broke down exactly what i wanted and they just made them come alive like well past like my wildest expectations i just adore them what i love even more is that the artist who who has drawn all of them is a latina artist and so that just feels extra special well cherry on top that makes it even more special like you said yeah but (laughs) excellent excellent job they are absolutely gorgeous so let's transition to our closing questions so these can be as long or as short as you would like okay I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask, what is your favorite genre to read? Romance. <laughs> Romance. <laughs> Shocker, Romance. what? <laughs> I was not expecting that. Romance now, is, sure. mm-hmm. is historical your favorite subgenre? Um, I want to say yes, and then I want to say no. It really just depends. If I'm writing, so if I'm drafting a new book, I cannot read historical romance. Because I feel like it, I don't want it to influence me even just subconsciously. Um, and it it usually gives me major imposter syndrome, which is silly because I, uh, I obviously understand that the finished product that I'm reading has been through multiple rounds of revisions and, you know, copy editing and all this stuff like that. So of course it's going to be like polished and beautiful. But when I'm in drafting brain, like it's hard not to compare my writing to like this finished draft which is so silly so I try not to read historical romance when I'm drafting um I usually read fan fiction honestly <laughs> it just is like what kind fun. what kind of fan fiction I read a lot of Raylo fan fiction nice what's your <laughs> what's your favorite oh gosh uh let's see you know what's really funny is like some of my favorite fanfic writers are now published authors so um, like Jenna Levine or Katie Shepard or Sarah Holly, Allie Hazelwood have written some of my favorites, Tia Grisson, um, Tristan Crone, like they all write really great fan fiction. There's one, um, what is her name? Lyrical Riot, I want to say is her pen name. I, I think on Twitter, she was as a little womp rat. <laughs> so nice. She has, uh, I just really love her writing and she has a, um, a fic that she hasn't finished and I check like once a month just to see if she's finished it and she <laughs> hasn't like, I'm like that's and that's okay because I understand sometimes you write and you just don't finish and you know I understand how it goes but I just I, I'm happy with the story the way it is right now but ooh, I would just be on cloud nine if she ever finished it <laughs> you're like please please <laughs> I need the ending please yes. <laughs> now what is one trope that you haven't written already that you would like to write? I think I would like to write a faded mate. I've never written one. It does. It doesn't really feel like um, a trope that would be conducive to historical romance. Um, but I've mentioned that I had some other ideas from for other book ideas. 
that faded makes my sleigh into one of those. We'll see. I, I kind of, I think it'd be fun to, to try it. I don't know that I would do it any credit, but. Really it's a good trope though. There's a mm -hmm. reason why it's a popular one, especially mm -hmm. in fantasy. It's, yeah, it's a good one. And it's kind of nice to know that we all have that one person out there. You know what I mean? That yep. will accept us. Well, not even that, because half the time, like they don't even like each other. But you know what? I, you know what I mean? They'll, they'll fight for you. <laughs> and exactly. Yeah. I love that. Now, what are you currently reading and what is on your TBR list next? So I just finished Elizabeth Everett's upcoming historical romance called The Love Remedy. And I adored it, but I'm not surprised because I really love her writing. Um, it's about a lady, a pop, a pop. Why can I not think of how to say it? She runs an apothecary, but she's an apothecist. Oh gosh. When we're all done here, I'm going to remember what exactly called. how to say it. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh gosh. Anyway, she, um, she runs an apothecary and someone has stolen her, like a formula for, um, like a salve for croup for babies and the male main character is like helping her find it and it's just I mean Elizabeth just writes gorgeous prose her characterizations are always like so strong and um she has a just a really wonderful discussion about women's rights and um how they've always been up for grabs, I guess you can say. They're, they've always been contentious, even when her story is set, which I think it's set in the 1880s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it was really fantastic. I just, or I've been reading also um, a book, it's called The Devil's Backbone. It's a Western historical romance by author Kirsten Bowling. Um, it's out in September. It's about a female bounty hunter who is trying to hunt down the man who murdered her parents and the oh, scandalous i know and the um uh the sheriff's deputy all dressed in black who's like in love with her it's been like really gritty and it's been really fun to kind of like leave london drawing rooms behind and go to like the old west and i mean i'm from arizona so i grew up in the old west i guess you can say so it's been a lot of fun to do that I think after that, I'm going to be reading. I actually wrote this down so I wouldn't forget. It's um, <laughs> Wake Me Most Wickedly by Felicia Grossman. It's like her upcoming um, fairy tale retelling. It's a um, based on uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But I believe like the hero is like the Snow Whitish character. So nice. I'm really, yeah. And she writes um, her characters are Jewish and they're... Um, like she just writes the most beautiful like communities. Like I learned so much um, reading her books and um, they're just really like smart and sensual. So I'm really excited to read that one next. Well, I've added uh, both of those to my, <laughs> uh, to my mental TBR list. Again, I know it's a shocker. Oh no, I have to buy more books, but now what is the most valuable piece of advice you've received in regards to your writing? I want to say the two most valuable, like if I can do two. Can yeah, I do two? absolutely. Absolutely. This is a very okay. self-serving question. So you give me as much as you want. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> One that's always worked out well for me is to um, 
always, not always, but like when you're done writing something, you turn into your editor, what are you going to do next? Like stay busy and not, I've learned not to put all my um, eggs into one idea basket, I guess you can say. So um, I have been on submission many times with many different ideas. And um, I've always just kind of operated on the fact that that might not sell. So what else can I write? Like what else, you know, can I um, spend time with? What other characters, stories can I tell? And I feel like that's that's helped me as I've tried to, you know, as I've transitioned to becoming like a professional writer, because then I'm not, I'm not floundering when I'm done working on something. I'm like, okay, well next, let me look at my ideas. What is speaking to me? What do I want to work on? And I always have something kind of in the works. And um, instead of like wearing me down or burning me out, I, I feel at least for me that it has um, just keeps me creative it keeps me busy. It keeps me looking forward. And, um, I, for me, that's been important. And the other piece of advice I would say is to keep your eyes on your own paper, which is certainly easier said than done, especially with social media where we're all sharing like the best things that have happened to us, right? We're sharing good news. We're sharing, you know, um, book deals we get agents we've signed with star reviews, you know, all, all of, we're all sharing the good stuff and rarely do we share the bad stuff. And so it's very easy, you know, especially as an emerging writer to think, oh, well, you know, so-and-so only queried for two weeks and she got, you know, a full request or, you know, she, um, you know, signed with her agent and got this huge book deal within a month, you know, all this other stuff. And it's so incredibly easy to one, feel like an imposter and two, just to feel like it's all kind of pointless if you're focusing on comparing yourself to others because everyone's publishing journey is going to be different everyone's path is you know some people have this like straight line to superstardom and more people meander along with lots of dips and valleys and you know um and I I try to keep that in mind. And I say try because of course it's, you know, I'm human and I'm affected by all of that too. So I just try to remember that my version of success is not someone else's and vice versa. That's good advice. I'm tucking both of those away for later. So thank you. (laughs) Now, if you weren't an author, experience didn't matter, pay didn't matter, education didn't matter. You could do anything besides being an author. What would you do for work? That is an excellent question. I, okay, this doesn't sound really weird to some, but I think I would like to go into behavioral therapy. So I have, um, my younger son is on the autism spectrum. And so he gets like uh, a lot of therapy, speech therapists, physical therapists, behavioral therapists. And um, I, because I'm there when he's getting therapy, like I just find it so fascinating and I really enjoy just kind of like being a part of the process and even just as a mom right um just as a mom like I'm his mom so it's a very important part of the process but um just kind of seeing how they do their work I just find it so incredibly interesting and I think 
that it, if things were different, that that might be an avenue I would pursue, I would look into, which is kind of crazy because one of my son's therapists didn't know anything about that line of work until her own son was diagnosed with autism. And she started to look into really? it just to help her own son out. And she was like, oh, this is interesting. And she like went to school went, got a master's degree and then got, went through this whole program to be certified as a, a board certified behavioral analyst. And I'm like, I think I would do the same thing. Like if I was in a position where I could do that, I just think it's really fascinating. And um, they're certainly, they're, the services they provide are certainly in need. So that's, I think I would probably do that. That's cool. That's a good answer. Thanks. Now, if you could invite any person over for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? I would absolutely invite my late grandmother. She passed away in 2004. And um, I would just love to see her again. I would love for her to meet my children. She thankfully got to meet my husband. We had been dating for like a year at that point. And um, I would love to just show her my life now, you know? And I just think that she would be so happy for me. And I just... I would like to like give her a hug again. You know, I don't know about you, but like, you know, people have smells like their own smell. And I remember my, my Nana used to smell so good, but I don't remember what that smells like. I just remember that she smelled good. And I would like to remember that smell again, I, I, if that makes sense. But I think it, I think I would in a heartbeat invite her over. It makes sense. Like mine would be my grandmother as well, who passed away when I was 16 and there's just, there's something about that relationship. And like mm -hmm. you said, trying to remember certain things yeah. and just wanting them to see how far you've come, what you've accomplished. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic mm -hmm. answer. Now, if you can invite a fictional person over for dinner, who would you invite? You know, I thought about this for a while. I, oh gosh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I wanted to say like, it would be fun to like have dinner with Elizabeth Bennett. Um, I just think that she would be a great witty conversationalist. And then I've, I mean, I can probably open up uh, any of these historical romance novels that I have on my shelf and be like, oh, it'd be so fun to chat with her. Like that would be awesome. Um, I don't know if there's like any one person. That's a really good question. I'm but I'm going to stick with Elizabeth Bennett because I think that would be fun. Yeah, she would be. And you could have like a legitimate, intelligent, witty conversation with her. Especially if it was like nowadays and like take her out. I bet her observations about what she saw would just be spot on. Like, they yeah. would be hilarious. That's a good answer. <laughs> now, where is a place that you haven't visited that you would like to both domestically and internationally? So... Internationally, I have never been to London. I write about it, but I've never been. I like watch videos, I look at maps, I do all that stuff, but I have never been myself and I would love to go there and to Scotland. Probably more to Scotland I want to go. Um, gosh, I would love to just go frolic in a, <laughs> in a field of heather in the Scottish Highlands. Um so definitely those two for international. Now domestic, that is a great question. I, well, see, I've been there. I was going to say, um, we took a, 
long road trip to Yellowstone National Park uh, in 2019. And we drove through like New Me- I, in Arizona. We drove through New Mexico and Colorado and then headed up to Wyoming. And then on the way back, we cut through uh, Idaho and then Utah and came in. We were in Idaho for maybe, I don't know, a few hours. And what I saw just from the interstate, it was gorgeous. And my husband and I were like, we're coming back and we're going to stay in Idaho and just explore and just looked so picturesque and rugged. And like, when you think of the West, right. And you think of people traveling across the plains to start this new life in the West, and these like soaring mountains and whatever, I think of that part of the country. Like I think of, you know, people seeing like the Tetons for the first time and then heading, you know, further on and like venturing into, you know, Idaho and, um, I definitely want to go back and actually spend time there. And actually my, I have a 12 year old and he, when he talks about going on a visit, he goes, when are we going to go to Idaho? That's how much of an impression it made on us just driving through the state. We're like, we're going to go, we're going to explore. We just haven't done it yet. Now, last question. What currently brings you joy? Uh, This is going to sound so silly, but Every night after our children are in bed, my husband and I sit next to each other on the couch and I show him TikTok videos that I saw. I save them or like I like them and then I go through and I make him watch TikTok videos with me. And I don't know why that just makes me so happy. We just sit together and he usually rolls his eyes, but he does it and he sits next to me and he allows me to play show and tell with TikTok videos. And it's just we do it for like 20 minutes, but it's just a fun little thing that the two of us do together. Right. And I don't have to worry about censoring the videos for the kids or anything like that. because It's just the two of us. Um, so I would say that that's probably the silly little thing that brings me a lot of joy. Cause I'll start laughing at something. He goes, are you saving it for later? And I'm like, yes, I am. So. Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> and that's not as silly as you think, because um, I, I do the exact same thing on mine's on Instagram. I save oh. them on Instagram. And like my boyfriend, he can't, he's so busy at his job during the day. He can't look at them. And mm-hmm. I send, like, if I send them, I'd probably send him like 25 a day. And so <laughs> we sit there on the couch like twice a week. We don't do it every night, but we do it like twice a week. And like, we get the dogs out of the way because they always want to snuggle. Mm-hmm. We sit down and I'm like, we are going to sit here for like 30 minutes and you're going to watch all the videos I've saved. And we laugh and we joke and we, we watch, you know, there's yeah. some that we watch like five times because it, it you know, they just get funnier as you mm-hmm. watch them. So it's not, it's not as oh, silly. It's a, it's a good yeah. like bonding, like laughing, just kind of hanging out, connecting mm-hmm. experience. So exactly. And after like a long day, it's fun to just giggle over something silly. Exactly. That you would probably like never see. Mm-hmm. you know, unless your spouse or whatever shows it to you. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a good answer. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Liana, for being here. It was an honor to chat with you. I'm so excited for Isabel and the Rogue. Oh, I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited. And it was so wonderful to meet you. And just thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And it was so lovely to like get to chat face to face like this with you. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And before I sign off, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune in. If you want to stay up to date on episodes and announcements, please subscribe or follow me at The Real Bookish Writer or at The Well Read Podcast on Instagram. Thank you again for listening and have a magical day. See you next week. <laughs>